Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And uh, jump right back into our series on uh, a tale of three rulers. We dealt specifically with uh, Samuel, and then we dealt with Saul. And uh, now we see kind of the introduction to David's story. And uh, we talked a few weeks ago about uh, the battle between David and Goliath. And so we're going to see tonight as we go into close out chapter 17, begin chapter 18. Uh, we're going to see this unique friendship that forms at the beginning of chapter number 18. And it shows us a pattern that we should follow when it comes to our friendships. Uh, I want to ask tonight, what kind of friends do you have in your life? Are they people who draw you close to the Lord? Are they people who push you away? Are they in people who encourage you to follow the Lord's leading and His will for your life? And a true friend will desire for you to seek the Lord and His will for you. I wrote this down. A friend doesn't care about your a friend that doesn't care about your spiritual maturity and development should not be speaking into the major needs of your life. A friend that doesn't care about your spiritual needs, maturity, development should not be speaking into the major needs of your life. And you think about you know, the adage, well, you know, Pastor, my wife and I are having uh, marriage problems and you know, I'm, I'm going to go to this person who's been married four times to get advice because they've been there, done that. Well, that's probably not the best person you want to talk to. Uh, but when we talk about friendship, what kind of friends... Do we have in our life? David received a major blessing from the friendship that he had with Jonathan, but tonight we're going to see how it all began. And we begin in verse number 55 of chapter number 17. And if you're taking notes, you can write down number one the curiosity. The curiosity. A lot of speculation uh, in regards to this conversation that gets ready to take place between Saul and Abner. Remember, we saw uh, David went out on the battlefield, he defeats Goliath, he cuts off his head, and all of the uh, Philistines are now running, all of the Israelites are chasing, pursuing, and they begin to come back with all the spoils from the uh, camp of the Philistines. And we see in verse number 55, it says, when Saul saw, and you say that one three times, Saul, 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 uh, Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, we'll see more about Abner later, uh, but we see him as he comes here, and uh, he's the major general, this is the chief of staff uh, when it comes to Saul's army. And he says, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, Inquire thou whose son the stripling is. You know, Saul doesn't seem, and it doesn't really make sense here, why is Saul asking who David is? Uh, why is he asking? Because just a few verses ago, in verse 31 and 32, it says, And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He had just seen, not an hour before this, he had just seen David. He knew who David was. If you go back one chapter to chapter 16 in verse 21 and 22, we see the relationship between David and Saul had already begun. It says, David came to Saul and stood before him and he loved him greatly. And he, David, became his, Saul's armor bearer. 
This was a prestigious position. This is the guy that kind of goes out carrying the shield. Remember, Goliath had one of those guys out on the battlefield with him and uh, he and David. But when we get here, it says, And Saul, verse 22 of chapter 16, And Saul sent to Jesse. So not only does Saul have a relationship with David, Saul also has a relationship with Jesse, or at least knows who he is. So how does Saul not remember who David is? I don't necessarily think that's the fact that Saul forgot David. I think Saul is asking for more information. I think Saul is asking, hey, give me the family heritage, the family lineage. I want to know everything about this family. Where's he from? Uh, what's he involved in? What does he do? He knew David and knew of David and knew of his family, but that was all he knew. Remember what was promised to the one who killed Goliath in verse number 25. Remember the men were talking to David in that early conversation when David showed up and said, what's going on? How's the battle going? In verse number 25, it says, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that's come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches. He's going to be wealthy, like he won the lottery. He's going to be wealthy, and he will give him his daughter. I hope that she looked good. Hope. I mean, it's kind of be like, hey, you know, I, this is the last one, and nobody wants, I, I don't know. You don't know. You don't know. Uh, and we'll give him his daughter. Uh, that's, I, I love that passage of scripture, side note, rabbit trail, uh, that talks about Leah being tender-eyed tender-eyed, Rachel being beautiful and Leah tender-eyed. I'll let you kind of see what you think that means. Uh, but it says, Saul says he'll give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Free in Israel. No taxes. Hey, this family is getting ready not only to have their son blessed, their son given a wife, but all of a sudden their entire family is going to live tax-free for the rest of their lives. This is a big deal. And Saul had a promise to keep. Remember, their culture there, they were known by the father's name. So when we see at the end of the chapter, when David connects himself to his father, that was their culture. So Saul could have been asking for the heritage of the family. Hey, we got to have all of his, we got to have his social, and we got to have all this information so that we can keep track of this family. We make sure that we give it to the right family. We want to make sure that we uh, don't, we don't get taken advantage of in the process and give this benefit to somebody else. But it shows me that just because they knew about David, they didn't really know David. They didn't really know who he was. And we might know someone's name, but do we really know people? We talk about having people, yeah, I know them. If somebody asks you, hey, do you know, and fill in the blank with somebody here at church. Oh, yeah, I know them. I see them. I see them every single Sunday. I say hello to them. I, I know them, Pastor. But do we really know them? When's their wife's birthday? When's their birthday? What are their kids' names? Where do they work? Now, give me some details about It's easy for us to say, yeah, I know who that is. It's a whole nother thing to say, I know who that is. I know them. And that's one major problem in the church when it comes to knowing Jesus. Because a head knowledge without heart knowledge will not get you into heaven. It's not about knowing about Jesus that gets you to heaven. It's knowing Jesus and Him knowing you. 
Now, I know a lot about our president. I know his wife's name. I know his kids' names. But he doesn't know me. And I don't know him. I know about them, but I don't know them. And we could say a lot about our friendships that way. Do you have friends that you know and they know you? I love what Adrian Rogers said. He said, we're to love people and use things, not use people and love things. Uh, You know, I agree. I, I don't think that God put us with other people to use them. We're to know people. We're to have those relationships, those friendships with people. So we see the curiosity, asking ourselves, who are our true friends? Who are the people who know us, who have relationship with us? The curiosity. But then, number two, we see the confirmation. The confirmation, verse 57 and 58. I love this. I love the the, uh, vivid detail that we see here in Scripture. Verse 57. And David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine. Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Now imagine this. You know, David is dragging this head <laughs> through the camp. You know, trail of sand, I'm sure. Uh, you know, trail, and uh, he's dragging this head. Imagine King Saul's tent, because that's where they're going. They're going to have a meeting with Saul. Imagine the king's tent, as glorious as it probably was, and here's this guy who walks in dragging this big head. Dragging this head into the king's tent. He brings the head with him. Verse 58, And Saul said unto him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Thy servant, Jesse. You know, Saul asks him really simple, Who do you belong to? Who, what's your family? Uh, tell me where you're from, who your mom and dad, uh, who your kinfolk. And so if somebody asks you, what would you say? Who do you belong to? No, I, I know that I grew up with Clay and Martha Spivey. And there are days when they remind me, you know, you still belong to us. Uh, so there are days. Uh, but if somebody asks, who do you belong to, what would we say? Because we ultimately belong to whoever has our allegiance. We belong to whoever has our allegiance. Some people belong to their job. Some people belong to their retirement account or their pension or their uh, hobby or their bank account. Or sometimes, as it's not, none of these things are bad things, but we're also talking about comparison. Some people belong to their family and they place their family over their relationship with the Lord. So it really comes down to who has our allegiance. None of those things are bad in their own category, in their own priority, but he should have the preeminence. What's interesting to me is here in, not that he identifies himself with Saul. You go back to verse number 32. When he comes into Saul's tent the first time after saying, I'll go and fight Goliath, in verse 32, remember He said, thy servant will go. Thy servant. So he connects himself with Saul. But here in verse number 58, he said, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse. I am the son of thy servant. It reminds me of Joshua chapter 24 in verse number 15. When 
Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know what David is doing without saying it? David is saying, hey, just like my dad is your servant, I'm your servant. Just like my father is faithful to you, I'm faithful to you. Just like my father is loyal to you, king, I'm loyal to you. And Saul saw this young man, David, and said, who do you belong to? And David said, I am the son of your servant. I am the son of the guy who serves you. And you have to wonder, is that why David said, Saul, I'm your servant too? Say, Pastor, what does that have to do with anything? Because we have a great opportunity as parents and grandparents to lead our homes. And our children will prioritize the things that we prioritize. If we don't prioritize a relationship with the Lord, how can we expect them to? If our kids don't see us ever reading our Bible, how can we expect them to? If our kids never see or hear us praying for other people, how can we expect them to? It all comes back to our relationship, our responsibility to maintain an active relationship with God. And we cannot and should not expect our children to lead the way spiritually in our homes when we won't do our job leading our home. It comes back to our relationship. And Joshua said in Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, there was no doubt what side Joshua was on. He had proven it for years. This is not uh, the beginning of Joshua's life. I know I love the Ten Commandments movie uh, when Moses hands the baton off to Joshua and he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That looks really good on a movie. It's just not biblical. This is the end of Joshua's life. You know what he's saying? He's saying, we have always served the Lord, and we always will serve the Lord. How could Joshua say that with confidence? Because Joshua had invested in his home to the point where he knew it was going to happen. Can you say that, moms and dads? Where you've invested in your home enough to where you know your kids will walk. I'm not talking about perfect. I'm not talking about your kids are never going to mess up or never going to sin. I'm not talking about that. But will they follow a pattern of righteousness that you have modeled for them to see? Will they follow the Lord because they've seen a mom and dad who followed the Lord? Hey, it's easy to say it. It's a whole other thing to live it. We can say, yeah, our family's a Christian home pastor. Man, we come to church on Sundays and we're here. Master clubs, our kids are plugged in. Man, yeah, we're a spiritual home. But how about 10 years from now? Are they still going to be spiritual? I'm not beating anybody up. I'm asking a simple question. Are we leading by example? And David said, my dad is your servant and I am your servant. And if you follow that on down, David invested in some of his children but not all of his children. We saw that not all of, and you think about Jesse, not all of Jesse's sons were super spiritual giants either. You might not bat a thousand, but what are you doing to try? You might not do a hundred percent. Your kids, you might have one, you say, well, pastor, I'm still praying for this one. They're walking away from the Lord. I see it. And you may not have All of them serving the Lord, but what are you doing any differently to make sure that you give a pattern for them to see? 
David looked at his father's connection to the king and said, I want that. Can our kids look at us and say, that's the relationship I want. I love the story of Elijah and Elisha and how Elisha, at the end of Elijah's life, before he went up to heaven in the chariot of fire, he asked Elisha, what do you want? If you could have one thing, what would you want? And Elisha said, I want twice as much ministry, twice as much of the touch of God, twice as much of the power of God that I've seen in your life. Would our kids look at our lives and want that? Would they look at us and say, man, I've seen a legacy and a testimony of faithfulness that I want? Could they say that? We see that David made this statement of allegiance for his family. And think about, this is not just a thing for couples. This is not just for moms and dads. This is for single moms and single dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles. They should, our children, our younger generation should see a pattern of faithfulness when they look at grown-ups. Hey, our kids are not the church of tomorrow. I hate that statement. Our kids are the church of today because we're investing in them now. We're not waiting until they're 18 to invest in them. Well, when they get out of high school, we'll start teaching them. No, no, no. I want them taught in the nursery. I want to see a pattern of righteousness and teaching spiritual truth at that age, even if it's just coloring a picture of Jesus on the cross. we got to start asking those questions early. Somebody said, well, you know, Pastor, I just don't want my children indoctrinated. I don't want them brainwashed. Can I be blunt honest with you? Somebody's going to brainwash your kids. Somebody's going to. It's either going to be the school they go to, the friends they hang around, the, the school that they go to when they graduate high school. Somebody is going to brainwash your kids. It might as well be the people who are raising them. And we might as well brainwash them with this book. Hey, they need their heart and their brainwashed. They need their heart and their brainwashed. Because somebody, I promise you, you don't do it, somebody will for you. Somebody is brainwashing our kids. And it's time for the church to say, hey, I don't really care anymore what the world says. We're going to do our part. And we're going to do our job. And families in those churches are going to say, we're going to do our part. And we're not going to expect the church to lead the way. We're going to lead by example at home. The ministry starts at home, not at church. Hey, don't expect the church to raise your kids on two meals a week. Because you and I can't survive on two meals a week. Not be healthy. Hey, it has to be more than that. I know I got on a rabbit trail, but it was necessary. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 3 and 4? He said, all therefore, he's speaking to people, and he says, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Do what they say, don't do what they do. Jesus is telling them, hey, be what they say because they sound really good. But don't follow their pattern because their pattern's all off base. Hey, we need to be people who are not just hearers of the word, 
Not just speakers of the word, but doers of the word. People who live it out. I love what Robert Murray McShane said. It's the mark of a hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but home. The mark of a hypocrite. To be a Christian everywhere but home. Are we what we claim to be? Paul carried that thought over into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 1 when he said, Be followers of me even as I am of Christ. Hey, follow me. As long as I'm following Jesus, you can follow me. And our families need to see that as well. Remember the invitation from the disciples was come and see. Hey, I've seen him do some great things. Now I'm encouraging you to come and see what I've seen. That's what discipleship is all about. It's taking what I have learned and sharing it with someone else. I think sometimes we look at discipleship, Brother Jesse, and we think, man, I've got to know every deep answer of every topic in the Bible to be able to help someone in their journey with Jesus. That is not discipleship. Discipleship is taking somebody by the hand on your journey that you're already on and saying, hey, come go with me. That's discipleship. It's, it's not uh, when I get all the answers question, Pastor, and I get my master's or doctorate seminary degree, I'll be ready to disciple. Man, I sure am glad the first church didn't act that way. Hey, 3,000 people wouldn't have got saved the day of Pentecost. People just said, come and see. And that is our call as well. Not only do we see uh, the confirmation and the curiosity, number three, we see the connection. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 18. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit unto the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Immediately following the conversation with David, we see that Jonathan and David form a friendship together. And I've heard some authors and preachers allude to the fact that this is kind of borderline. No, this kind of looks odd. This, this kind of looks. But I feel like sometimes we put our American spin on the Bible and it's not fair. We try and justify the world that we have today and say, well, you know, that, that just that, that rubs me the wrong way because these guys really loved each other. I sure am glad that we have brothers who actually love each other. I sure am glad that men can hold each other accountable as true friends and show Christian love to each other. I don't see this as dirty or ungodly or gross or anything like that. But the simplicity is pretty obvious. They were close, really close friends. Verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him go uh, would let him go no more home to his father's house. Hey, they were so tight. Saul was so impressed with David's character, which we'll see next week. So impressed with his character. He said, hey, there's something different about him. Come live at our house. I want you to come and stay at our house because whatever you have, I want my kids exposed to it. And think about that. He said, I want this friendship to continue. One of the saddest stats that I've ever read came from one of our growth group books. Kent Hughes said only 10% of men ever have any real friends. 10% of men have any real friends. He said in that same book, we need Christian male friends who have a same-sex understanding of the serpentine passages of your heart. We need men, men, to stand up and say, here am I, Lord, send me. 
We need men of our church. Hey, I'm thankful for women. I'm thankful for godly, spirit-led women who love the Lord and serve Him. I'm thankful for that. But the mark of a strong and healthy church is strong, spiritually healthy men. Not women. Hey, guys, it is up to us to lead the way. Up to us. I'm thankful for women. But it's up to us to lead by example. I, I think it's pretty obvious in Genesis chapter 3 when God spoke to Adam and Eve. And Eve sinned first. But who did God speak to first? He spoke to Adam. Why? Because Adam was expected to know better and lead by example. And we are too. We're not off the hook, guys. That's why we invest in men's ministry. That's why we have events throughout the year. That's why we're launching this new man-to-man initiative in January. Because we need strong men in our church. Richard Phillips tells a story in the book, The Masculine Mandate. Great growth group. You should sign up for it, guys. You're welcome for the plug. Uh, But two remarkable statues in Washington, D.C. One is a massive memorial right outside the Capitol building to General Ulysses S. Grant. Big war stallion there. Visitors can hardly miss this beautiful depiction of him going into battle. Grant's military leadership was decisive in the Union's victory in the Civil War and considered a symbol of the force of human will, icon of a strong man who stands against the storm when all others have retreated. But two and a half miles away in a pleasant and remote park location, there's another memorial. It's a statue of a lesser-known Civil War figure, Major General John Rollins. This statue has had eight different locations. It's been moved eight different times because of its lack of exposure and, quite honestly, from most people's perspective, lack of significance. But Rollins was a lawyer in Illinois before the war and eventually became Grant's chief of staff. Rollins knew everything about Ulysses S. Grant. They were close. He knew his character flaws, especially his weakness for alcohol. At the beginning of the war, Rollins extracted a pledge from Grant to stay away from alcohol and to abstain from drunkenness at all costs. And when Grant threatened to fall away from the pledge, Rollins would plead with him and support him until he got back on track. In many ways, it was Rollins who stood beside this great war hero, Ulysses S. Grant. Rollins' memorial is simple compared to the majesty of Grant's, but one could argue that Grant would have, could have, ruined his life if it hadn't been for Rollins. See, it's the Grant statue that's on the postcards in the Capitol bookstore. But those postcards would not be available had it not been for Rollins' impact. Nobody pays attention to Major General Rollins. And our world is one that celebrates the individual, the power of one, solitary achievements. But that's not how the Bible recognizes it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10, it says, Two are better than one. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. 
For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. So tonight, who is that friend in your life? That person who will be there to pick you up when you've fallen. That person who rallies around you, encourages you to do the right thing even when you don't want to. We see this connection is formed, but lastly we see the covenant that takes place. Look at verse 3 and 4. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and his bow and to his girdle, or his outer garment. Jonathan didn't just have a friendship with David. It caused him to make an agreement with David. And he acted on the decision to be close. And it makes me wonder what we actually do and actively do to form relationships. What are we actively doing? We, we say that we're friends with a lot of people. Yeah, pastor, I'm friends with them. Yeah. But we don't know anything about that person. We're friends with our coworkers, but we don't do anything outside of work with our coworkers. Why? Because deep down, they're really not our friends. We are, they're acquaintances of ours, but not our friends. One of the best books that I've written, 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 yeah, written, uh, no, nah, one of the, maybe one day, uh, one of the best books that I have read that has been written in a long time is called The Quest for Friendship. It was written during COVID, and a friend of mine wrote it, uh, who pastors a church in Las Vegas, and he talked about the different levels of friendship, the different layers, and I want to show this picture tonight on the circle of friendship, and we'll, we'll close with this, but I want, to, I want us to think about where do your friends fit. You know, think about three or four of your friends that you say, man, these are the people I'm closest to. And I want to go through these different rings and see where those friends, you would say that those friends fall. Uh, the outer layer is our fans. Uh, these are people who, they know you, but we wouldn't even know that they exist. You know, we, hey, they know your name. They know where you work, but that's about it. They don't know anything else about you, and you don't even know anything about them. You know them, and they know you, but that's just kind of it. You may or may not even know they exist. That's the fans. And that might be people who visit church. That may be people who just see you from a distance, who you greet them on Sunday morning. Hey, how are you? They're just fans. The next ring is our acquaintances. These are people we go to work with, school with, church with, live near you. You know a couple things about them, and they might know a couple things about you, but they only know a few key facts. They know your name. They know uh, your dog's name as you walk by their house. They, you know their spouse's name. You may or may not know their kids' names. They're just acquaintances. The next ring is our tribe. We're all part of a large society, but we're connected by smaller tribes within that society. Think about our group that we are, our big group that we are, our tribe, is we're Americans. All right, those who live here, we identify we're, we're Americans. But within that big group, there is a smaller group of Virginians. And that is our tribe. We have a tribe of people who live in Virginia, people who share a common interest. And then the next ring is our group. These are people who we spend the majority of our life with. These are people who uh, may be our neighbors for a long time. They're uh, acquaintances from 
work from, from we've worked with him for years, people that we've gotten close to. And this is a dividing line between those who have emotionally and spiritually healthy relationships and those that are not emotionally and spiritually healthy. This is our group, the people we spend the majority of our time with. And without a few solid groups in our life, you will never have close relationships. This group could be your Sunday school class. See, there's a group of people that you see on a regular basis. You spend time with them. You may go out to eat with them. You're close to them. But just know that you're not going to fit into every group. And that's okay. I'm not going to fit in a hunting group. I could care less. I would rather sleep. But not everybody's going to fit into a Lego group. Like me. Yeah? There you go. So, our groups. Next, the next to last circle is our close friends. You know, Jesus had thousands of fans, but he only had 12 really close followers. He had hundreds of followers, but he talked differently to and about the 12 men who walked with him every single day. They were close. These are the people who know you and they still like you. And the sad thing is that Many times, life transitions us from one season to another, and we find ourselves trying to hold on to those close relationships. And it's just not possible. See, not only are there close friends for your season that you're in right now, some of those friends that you have in this season right now will not be your friends five years from now. Life will happen, and we all know that that takes place. So just because they're your close friend now doesn't mean that they'll always be your close friends. Think about people that you were super tight with in high school that you won't see again until you hit that 20 or 25 or 50-year reunion. Man, we were close, but life happened. Things changed. And then the inner circle is our best friends. It's said in the book that you may or may not in your entire life have less than five people that end up in this circle. And your entire life, your best friends. See, Jesus had 12 really close friends, but he had three best friends. Three people who he spent more time with than others. And you think about it, the 12 knew it and they were okay with it. I see, it should not bother me that someone I'm friends with has a closer friendship with someone else. That shouldn't bother me. I should be excited that they have a close friend. A best friend. But Jesus had those three that stood out and they got to see different experiences with Jesus than the other guys did. The highs and the lows. You think about James and John, Peter, James, and John. They were up on the mount. A transfiguration. Hey, it's good for us to be here. They saw Jesus in his glorified state. But they also, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they went a little farther with Jesus and prayed closer than the rest of the disciples. Best friends. So do you have these kinds of relationship with other people? Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. See, Jonathan didn't just say they were friends. He proved that they were friends. He did stuff to act on that relationship. And it causes us to wonder, 
If it's based on action rather than just words, how many true friends do I really have? How many close friends do I have? How many best friends do I have? And what have you given up? You can look at the end of verse number four. Jonathan gave up stuff to keep that friendship. Gave him stuff to have that friendship. But what have we given up? Have we sacrificed at all for a friendship? Having friends always costs us something. But what has it cost you for a friendship? Have you invested in any relationships to draw close and have godly friends that will help you draw closer to him? Father, please bless. Thank you for your word. and Thank you for the application on friendship. Lord, I ask that you please help us to have the right kind of friends that you desire for us to have, Lord, that will draw us close to you, or people will encourage us to follow your will, your plan for our lives. Lord, I ask that you please help us to see ourselves in this picture and ask ourselves what kind of relationships that we have. What are we doing to maintain them, keep them? Uh, Lord, we may have friends, and uh, maybe even close friends, Lord, that don't even need to be in the circle. Uh, Lord, that are dragging us away from you. Lord, I ask that you please help us to search our hearts and help us to examine our friends list and see who needs to be close and who doesn't. And Lord, help us to be willing to sacrifice when those decisions need to be made. Lord, please bless our time. Please speak to our hearts. And Lord, please bless all of the different groups that are meeting tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to go to our